Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Tonight we're going to be addressing the question, as Albert said, how can I find God's will for my life? And it's interesting, over the the previous five weeks to tonight in this series, we've been addressing this question in various forms. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but one of the constants, though the questions have been very diverse, um, one of the constants has been addressing this theme of God's will. And it shouldn't surprise us because for Christians, the idea of God's will is very important to us. Because we believe in a God who is personal and relational, right? He's a person, or he's actually one God in three persons. He has a mind, he has, he has a will, he makes decisions. And so his will is important to us as believers. And we've talked a little bit, uh, especially last week in the, in the Sermon on Suffering, we addressed the... The question of what is God's will, and we we saw that there's at least a couple of ways that the Bible talks about God's will, and we talked about how there's the secret will of God, which is known only to Him, which encompasses eternity past to eternity future, um, that's His own counsel to keep to Himself, and then there's the revealed will of God that is given to us in the Scriptures. So every page, I know it's kind of against the, the, the youth group rules to ever read your Bible by just turning open a page and reading it, but you can do that because all of this is God's will for us. All of it is his revealed will for us. All of it is his inspired word to us. And so as long as you read it in context, wherever you turn in the Bible, you're going to be hearing God's voice. So there's this secret will of God that is kept from us and his revealed will, which is made plain to us. And we saw in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that's exactly what it says. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So you have two two sides of the same coin there, but God's uh, secret will that he keeps to himself, or at least that he never promises to reveal to us, and then his revealed will, which is on every page of the scriptures. But when it comes to the question tonight, Those of you who ask this question don't care about all that, right? Because God's secret will is his own will. He's not going to share it with you. And if he did, your mind would explode. And so you don't want to know that. And his revealed will is like you just look that up yourself. Read the Bible and you get his revealed will. What, What you want to know is God's specific will, his will of direction, right? Like what, what does God want me to do in 2017? Who is the man that God wants me to marry? What is the job that God wants me to pursue? What's the uni degree or whatever? And so when we're asking this question, my assumption is that that's what we want. We want this specific will for me in this place at this time. God, tell me what I'm meant to do with my life. And just from the top, I want to tell you that I don't think God ever promises to reveal that to us. I don't think God ever promises to tell us his specific will for us at this point in time. But we are going to spend the rest of our time thinking about how we might position ourselves to be guided by God into his will for our lives. And so I want to just think about for a second, what, what is it? Remember, we've been thinking in, in these questions that we've been addressing, what's the question behind the question? What's the motivation that's driving so many of us to ask this question? And so I think there are three things, mainly, that are driving us to ask this question. Number one is that we desire to please God. If you're a Christian here tonight, you desire to please God. You know that he is creator, you are creation, he is Lord, you are servant, he is father, you are son and daughter, and as his son and daughter, you want to please him. Right? Can I get an amen on that, or are we just, we're not sure? Right, okay, yeah, I thought so. So you... You're you're here tonight because you want to please him. And what's driving your desire to know God's will is a desire to please him. You want to do what he wants you to do. 
And it goes beyond just obeying his revealed will. You have the Ten Commandments, or you have every commandment in the Bible that makes clear what God wants you to do in an ethical or moral sense. Uh, but you want to you do more than that. You want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You want to walk in the way that God has carved out for you. And so we desire to please God, and that's why we ask this question. The second thing is that we want to avoid suffering. This is what drives a lot of our prayers, if we're honest. A lot of prayer, the prayers of Christians are driven by anxiety. I'm convinced of this. There is a deep-seated anxiety about the world around us being a dangerous place, about the reality of our own mortality, right, that drives our prayer life. And so we pray lots of prayers about God protecting us and saving us and healing us and keeping us safe. And I totally get this. This time last night, I was in Marysville with my kids. They were staying overnight with Renee, my wife, and um, some other family members. We had a bit of a celebration and for my mother-in-law. And we had, I don't know if you've been to Marysville, but it's a beautiful place. And there's the Stevenson Falls. You can do a little trek up to. And um, by trek, I mean walk from the car to the falls. It's about 100 meters. And um, it's a trek. It's a trek when you've got a three-year-old son who doesn't believe in walking. He just does, he's just like, I'm not going to walk. Um, and then you do the thing like, all right, see you later. And then you realize you're not going to leave him there because he, he's probably going to get stolen by someone. He's a cute kid. Anyway, while we were there, we saw one plaque that was um, devoted to four kids who were killed when a, when a tree came down right on top of them as they were looking at the falls. And then another one to a kid who just disappeared and was never found in the bush. And so I had all of this, and then I tucked them into bed, and I had the best snuggle with them. Just love my kids so much. Um, just, yeah, beautiful time, snuggling, praying, and singing. And then I got in the car, and I was driving all the way home. It's two hours, and, and my anxiety kicks in, partly because my mother-in-law was terrified of me driving through the Black Spur at nighttime, um, uh, and partly because I don't want to lose them. And kids get lost, and kids get killed, and bad stuff happens to kids, and wives, and even mother-in-laws. Come on. I love my mother-in-law. She's amazing. But this anxiety was driving me on the way home to pray, and I realized I was praying over and over again the same prayer, doing exactly what Jesus said not to do, which was to heap up empty phrases like the pagans do, thinking that their mantras will change God's mind or force him to act. And it's, it's an anxiety which is very, very, has a very OCD-like quality to it. Like, if I say this thing enough, then it will assuage my anxiety and calm my fears. And the problem with this is that, and the irony of it is, that if we walk in God's will, the scriptures make clear that we will suffer. So we get a little mixed up with this motivation. We want to be in God's will because we're afraid of suffering, but the Bible tells us, like Paul says to Timothy, those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, an obedient life, a, a life in God's will, will be persecuted. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross, your instrument of execution, and follow me. And unless you do that, you can't be my disciple. So whether for right motivation or wrong, that, I think that's part of what's behind it. And number three Third reason we want to know God's will is because we're paralyzed by choice. Paralyzed by choice. I've read part of two books that have been written in the last decade. One's called The Tyranny of Choice. The other is called The Paradox of Choice. And they both address this phenomena, both written by psychologists, a phenomena um, which is that the more choice we have, the more anxious we become. And the harder it is for us to make decisions. We're led to believe that the more choice we have, the happier we'll be. The more choice we have, the, the more options we have, the better choices we'll make. But actually, we just end up not making any choices because we're paralyzed. I remember talking with some missionaries who came back from Africa. They've been there for 10 years. Their kids were born over there. They came back to Australia, and they came back to live. And the, the wife of the couple said to me, we're, just, we're, we're so... We're praising God for Aldi. 
it's a weird thing to say. And she said, it's because they started going to Coles or Woolworths or something, and they just, like, they stood before 500 boxes of cereal and just didn't know what to do. They weren't, they weren't used to this. How, where do you start? How do you know what to choose? And so they got to Aldi, and there's one choice. Praise the Lord. And it also induces this kind of fear of missing out and this buyer's remorse, right? Like, like, well, if I don't get that, but if I do choose that, then I don't get that. And, and if I do choose that, then I'll regret getting that and I'll, I'll, I'll have a fear of missing out on that. And it's just, it's just anxiety inducing. I remember I preached a little series on this a few years ago at another church and my grandmother was still alive back then. She was 100 years old. And so I thought this is a, I, I frequently just sat down and talked to her because you don't get to do that very often, right? Like talk to someone who was alive a century ago. And so I asked her, like, trying to get at this, this options thing, this choosing thing. And so I asked her, like, why did you marry Grandad? And she was like, puzzled by the question. She was like, well, he, he was a Christian and he had a job. And in her village... He had like three options, and he was a good one. How did you know what you want to do with your life? Well, she had never worked. She was a stay-at-home mum. That's what her mum did. She'd never driven a car, right? It just like the options weren't there for her that we have to deal with today, and I mean that, that we have to deal with every day. Part of the reason we don't like making decisions is because it cuts us off from, off from options. Like every decision you make, it, there is some grief and loss involved in that. If you choose to marry this woman, you're choosing not to sleep with all of these women. I th- I'm pretty sure, I don't know my Latin very well, but I think the word we get decide from, that means to cut off. You're, li- you're literally cutting off all of these options by making this choice. And so we're paralyzed by the options. How many, if you're a young man here today, how many women are in your sphere that you could pursue for marriage. Oh, there's like three billion. Give or take a few. Take, take out the minors, I guess. But like da- dating sites that open the door to you to endless numbers of women, where 100 years ago you would have had five, maybe. And so it, it paralyzes us. It paralyzes us. And so that then, that that inability to choose, that indecision, drives some of us to want God to make things simpler for us by just telling us what to do. Have you ever sat down on a first date and kind of you're at the restaurant and you, neither of you wants to make a decision about what to eat because you don't want to come across as being overbearing and just, oh, no, what do you want? Well, I don't know, what do you want? Well, right? That's how we feel about us and God, and we just want him to be the man who makes a decision for us. Tell me what you want me to do. My analogy's a little off tonight, but... So there's three reasons we want to know God's will. We desire to please God. We want to avoid suffering. We're, suffering. We're, we're paralyzed by choice. Now, I think, though I said God never promises to reveal his specific will for our lives, I think there is... Some things we can do to position ourselves well to be guided by him. Now, choose those words carefully. I think we need to position ourselves well in order to be guided by him. I think there are things that we can do, ways that we can live that will add to the fog, and there are things we can do and ways we can live that will clear the fog and give us a better insight than we would have if we didn't do that positioning, that kind of living. And I think the starting point for all of this is our mission statement as a church. We exist to be a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We want to do that because all of life is all about Jesus. And so I think if we're going to position ourselves well to discern God's will for our lives, we first have to get our priorities straight. We have to make all of life all about him. This speaks to our, the, our, our morality, the way we live our lives 
in terms of our morality, our sexual morality, our finances, these kinds of things influence whether we will see clearly God's will for us or not. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this, Jesus died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Beautiful little play on words there. But the point is, Jesus died for you. That's what brought you back from the dead to life. And now, because he's brought you back from the dead to life, you are called to live for him. Elsewhere, Paul will say, you're, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So because you have been ransomed, you now belong to God, and because you belong to God, you are to live for God, and this is nothing new to anyone here, and yet how, how often do we fail in this? And I'm saying to the degree that we fail in this, we will cloud our vision for what God wants for us. Remember when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's He's speaking to this issue of anxiety, which I've been talking a lot about tonight. It's an an anxiety that can paralyze us. It's an anxiety that can prevent us from taking risks. And uh, it's very interesting that when he's talking about anxiety, this is what he says in, in Matthew 6, 33. He says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, he says if you focus on the kingdom, then you don't need to worry about the details. There are a few people in this church who could testify very strongly to this truth, and there are, I'm sure, a few of us who have never tested it. This is about positioning ourselves in such a way, making all of life all about Jesus, seeking first the kingdom and God's righteousness, And Jesus says, as we do that, the anxiety that we feel will tend to melt away. We'll find ourselves in a position where we're better able to discern God's will for us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. And then here's a key passage in all of this. All right, Paul, in Romans 12, He says this to the church, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's our mission statement. We just packaged it in different words so that we could seem clever. But that's what we're talking about. Making all of life all about Jesus is acknowledging He is Savior. I've been redeemed. I am now a living sacrifice. I'm not the kind of sacrifice that gets its throat slit or even crucified on the cross, but I'm a living sacrifice. That is, every day I take up my cross and follow him. Every day I make all of life all about him. And then the next verse, verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you see the the sequence there? Make all of life all about Jesus. Be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Turn yourself around. Repent. Start following Jesus. Position yourself in such a way that you are honoring him with your body. In that way, your mind will be transformed, renewed. And then you'll be able to test. That's the word that I think Peter uses for the gold being tested by fire. You'll be able to test what God's will is and see that it's good and pleasing and perfect, just like a perfect bar of gold. But until you do that, you'll find it very difficult to see what God's will is. So this is a a process, a growing in maturity that as we mature and grow as Christians, we will no longer be conformed to the world, but we'll be transformed through through the renewing of our mind. I think back to when I first became a Christian, I was 19, I think the first few years 
and I'm just ashamed when I think about it. The amount that I sort of regressed into my old self. Yeah, or just the amount of dumb decisions I made. Just unwise decisions. And I, I really kind of beat myself up. And then I'm helped a little bit by remembering that this is a process. This is something God does over time. Some of us it happens quicker than others. For most of you, it'll happen quicker than me. But it's a process of sanctification. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will say, this is God's will for you, that you would be sanctified. You would be renewed. You would be transformed. And so if you're here and you're a new Christian and you're just, you hate the fact that you're, you're still so entrenched in that old way of thinking, then be encouraged. Think about how God has brought you this far. Think about all the transforming and renewing that God's already been doing. And he says because he's the author and perfecter of our faith that he'll see it through to the end. And as we grow in this maturity and wisdom, then we're better able to discern God's will for us. This is a growing in what the Bible calls wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom enables us to live godly lives. Which is handy because a whole section of the Bible is called the wisdom literature. One of the great books of wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs. So here's what it says in Proverbs 2. It says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to grow in wisdom and understanding. And James says, I think it's chapter 1, verse 5, he, he says that God promises to give us wisdom as we ask for it. Many of us are not as wise as we could be because we don't ask. God is the fount of all wisdom. And we're not asking him for it. So this desire to grow in wisdom is a good one, and it'll help us discern what God's will is for us. And I want to talk about three, I guess, three keys to growing in wisdom. So if you're here tonight and you're like, yeah, this is my question. I want to know what God's will is. And I'm saying you're going to know God's will better as you position yourself uh, in making all of life all about Jesus and growing in wisdom so that you can discern what God's will is, then here, here are a few keys. You might want to commit these to memory. Number one, Scripture. So we've already said that Scripture is God's revealed will to us, all right? Every page we turn to, it's God speaking to us. If you want to know whether you should commit adultery or not, you just turn to the Ten Commandments. There's the answer. And it's, it's no, in case you're wondering. I know you guys down the back there, you were kind of wondering. It's no. You should not commit adultery. That's his revealed will, never changes, done. But I'm saying it's more than that. It's not just God's revealed will that helps us make moral decisions and so on. I'm saying that as we soak ourselves in Scripture, I love that image, soaking, saturating in Scripture, it transforms and renews our mind so that almost by instinct, we start making wiser decisions. This is the beautiful thing about the Bible. The writer of Hebrews says that it's a living and active word. It cuts through us. It exposes us. It changes us. And because it's inspired by the Spirit, the Spirit flows through it to renew us, transform us, and change us. This is one of the great beliefs we have in the church, in this church, is the Bible is not just authoritative, it's transformative. It doesn't just tell us what to do, it changes us. It's no coincidence that the wisest people you know are the ones that read the Bible the most. That's not a coincidence. I don't just mean read it like the Pharisees, I mean 
soak in it. So our attitude should be like the psalmist in Psalm 19. This is what he says. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Exclamation mark. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. That's what we're asking for, right? I want a bit of light. Things seem so dark. All of the options are crowding out the sunlight, and we just need a lamp. And the Bible is not just a, a lamp, like if you open it, it will cast some light on the, on the decision through a verse picked out here or there. It's a, it's a lamp that sort of glows from within as you soak in it, as you memorize it, as you meditate on it. It's a lamp that glows and emanates light as you walk through life. And Paul reassures us that it's a trustworthy word in, you know this verse, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about wanting to follow a path that honors God, that pleases God, that sort of fulfills his purpose for our life. Teaching is going to help instruct us, transform us, and renew our mind. Rebuking is going to stop us going down that path to destruction and put us back on the narrow path that leads to life. But we don't just get rebuked, we get corrected. We get put back in the right place. We get our mind renewed, transformed, and we are trained in righteousness. That's the whole game. Jesus is the only one who fully fulfilled God's will for his life. Like every waking moment, like every thought he had, that's God's will, that's God's will, that's God's will. Ate an apple like that, that's God's will, that's God's will. Like every single thing, perfectly fulfilling God's will. And as we're trained in righteousness, that just means being trained to be more like the righteous one, Jesus. So all of that happens as you saturate in the scriptures. That's number one. Number two, counsel. Counsel. This one might be a little bit underemphasized compared to the first one and the one that's to come. Counsel, though, is very, very important. If you want to discern what God wants for you, if you want to discern what God's will is for you, then you need, you must have around you counselors. I'm talking about wise, mature people who themselves have had their minds transformed and renewed. So this is why for the last five years I've been praying, God, please send more old people to our church. We don't have enough old people. And it's not that old people are the only wise people. There are some very wise young people in our church for sure. But there is a certain wisdom that comes with just walking with Jesus for years. And so you need to get around some of these people. One of the biggest mistakes Christianity has made in the last generation is just to homogenize all of our generations. And then you've got you know, 120-year-olds going to church and they don't know anything. They're morons. They don't have anyone speaking in with wisdom, with counsel. This is, I mean, this is the whole reason I'm standing here tonight. I, I, some people pick up the Bible and they read and they're like, I'm going to become a full-time pastor. I'm going to be a missionary in Syria. That was not my experience. I did not. I read all of the Bible bits that were meant to convince me, and I did not want to do this. I was very opposed to it. The last thing I wanted to do. And then I made the mistake of asking a couple of older, wiser men that I respected what they thought, and they said, you should go into full-time ministry. And that's what made the difference was the influence of godly people. It wasn't people in opposition to God's word. It was people who were informed by God's word. So I'd encourage you, if you're here, and especially if you're in your late teens and early 20s, the decisions that you're making are coming thick and fast, and they're big and meaningful decisions. They're the kind of decisions that are prone to paralyze you. You have to get older, wiser, mature Christians around you. I tell you what, like, I can't think of anyone in our church who wouldn't be encouraged and gratified if you came to them and said, can we just get a coffee 
once a month. I just want to run some stuff by. That would be a beautiful thing. And again, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about this. So in chapter 12, it says, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Next one, 15. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. So it's not enough to get one advice from one person who might just be, you might just choose them because they're just like you and they're a yes man and they'll just tell you to do what you want to do. You need to have a few, a few advisors around you. Next one, chapter 19. Listen to advice and accept discipline and at the end you will be counted among the wise. That's important because it's not just about getting advice, it's about accepting discipline. It's about accepting correction, accepting rebuke. This is the risk you take when you invite people to speak into your life. They might tell you not to do what you want to do. But the wise man or the wise woman listens and receives discipline and rebuke. It's the way God helps shape our decisions and our affections. So we're looking at Scripture We're receiving counsel. Number three, we're going to God in prayer. Uh, I'm not like, I know this is Sunday school, but it's true. Scripture, counsel, prayer. We're getting before God. We're crying out to him. We're asking him to both grow us in wisdom and to shed light on the path that he wants us to walk down. Remember, God is not this kind of like pagan Greek God who's, who might be feeling affections for us or might be just wanting to slap us around a bit. He is a loving Father. He is at your beck and call, not because you are Lord and he is slave, but because you are Son and he is loving Father. By the way, If you want to get these three things by next week incorporated into your life, then you need to join a small group. This is exactly what small groups are, right? Look at scripture together, chat together, get counsel, and pray. It's the whole game. So if you're not yet in a small group, then you just need to fill out a little connect card on your way out, and you can sign up, and we'll get you plugged in as best we can. We're doing some more training to get some more groups, um, but bear with us. We'll get you plugged in just as soon as we can. Scripture, counsel, prayer. Just listen to the way Paul prays for the church in Philippi, all right? He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's his prayer for them. He wants them to grow in knowledge and and depth, wisdom, so that they can discern, so they can make wise decisions, discern what is best. And again, it's linked to moral purity, so that you can be pure on the day of Christ. That's a great prayer. You can just add that to your prayer list right away. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for our church. You say, Lord, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that I may be able to discern what is best and so that I may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's a great prayer. Come on. And again, in Acts chapter 1, we have an example of this. You have the apostles... Judas is dead. They're wondering what they should do. And so it's unclear. Should it be this guy or this guy? They're both good guys. They're both full of the Spirit. They could both make great apostles. What should we do? They decide to pray, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belonged. They cry out to God because God knows the answer. It's as simple as that. We pray because God knows the answer. God is sovereign. And I've said again and again, he's not making any promises to give you a step-by-step manual, but 
we do pray and ask him for insight and for wisdom to make good decisions. So it's scripture, it's counsel, and it's prayer. They're the three keys, but then there's a little bonus one called supernatural surprises. Right, so the first three, these are your regular day-to-day way of discerning what God wants you to do by growing in wisdom and insight. And then, because God won't be caged or boxed, he just loves to throw in supernatural surprises. So at this church, we are doctrinally charismatic. That means that we believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in the New Testament are active today. And normally when we say that, especially new people are like, well, what? are you sure you're charismatic? Like, the music doesn't sound very charismatic or whatever. And the point is that we, we don't care about the trappings of Pentecostalism or whatever. We believe in the active ministry of the Holy Spirit and that it's exactly the same as it was in the first century, that God didn't switch off any of those switches. Like tongues, no. Prophecy, no. We'll switch. He didn't do that. They're still active. And so we embrace and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of God's people. Sometimes that comes to us through prophecy or visions or dreams, words of knowledge. And sometimes God does that to help shed light on something which is otherwise dark. There have been points throughout, I I can think, over the last six years, there have been points where the road ahead got a little bit hazy and then there was a, perhaps a word of knowledge or a, or a vision that just helped shed a little bit of light on the situation. And it came together as an accumulation of information through counsel and prayer and scripture reading, together with these supernatural surprises that just shed light on a situation that was otherwise a little bit foggy. So you see this in Acts chapter 13. This is a situation where it happens for the apostles. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So here's what's happening. In the context of doing normal church stuff, right? they haven't, been, they haven't had all of their mission kind of thrown off track because they're just constantly focused on the supernatural gifts. Now they're doing the things that God has called them to do. Participating mission, worshipping the Lord, fasting as an expression of their desire for God to speak to them, their dependence on him, and in that context, God just shows up and speaks to them. I want Barnabas, I want Saul, send them off. And then they continue to worship and pray, and then they go ahead and do what God's called them to do. So, I would love us as a church to obey God's commandment to us, to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, without which we will suffer as God's people. Without which we will suffer as God's people. Why will we suffer? Well, maybe some of us will suffer in the body because God would like to give someone a gift of healing in order to communicate his grace in miraculous healing, but we don't have any of those things because we didn't ask for them. Maybe God wants to speak a word of, of power and, and edification into the church, but we don't receive it because nobody sought after the gift. We are prone, and I'm serious about this, this is a commandment of God that we are prone to disobey. We talk about the revealed will of God and his commandments. Well, this is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14.1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So we're down with the first bit, definitely. Yep, that's a commandment of God. We need to follow the way of love. We're trying to do that. We're doing the best that we can. But then he says, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. How many of us are doing this? How many of us are on our knees regularly saying, Lord, please give me a gift? Please give me gifts. Remember, spiritual gifts exist to bring glory to God and edification to the church. Edification just means building, edifice, right? 
So if you don't have the gifts, then you may not have the edifice. Especially prophecy. Isn't that interesting? So one of the reasons that I'm charismatic is because I've had some experience with this that I can't deny. And one of the experiences was right at the beginning, before I first got into ministry, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Saturday. I was choosing between going to Ridley College, studying the Bible, and then getting into ministry. I thought I was going to be a chaplain. So doing that or taking this other path and doing the job that I really wanted to do, which would earn me more money and would be cooler for me to tell my friends and my kids about. All right? So, so that, that's where I'm at. And on the Saturday, I make the decision to do the other thing. And then on the Sunday, I got up at the evening service at our church, and I said something. I don't know. I, don't know, I think maybe I was meant to do like a, I don't know, a testimony or talk about something. And so I was doing that. And then afterwards, a guy from the church came to me, and I love the way he did this. Because I'm really turned off by people who are like, I'm a prophet, and thus saith the Lord. You know, and there was, there was none of that. There was a humility. You remember what Paul said? Remember Paul says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. We never have perfect knowledge. Our prophecy is never on the same level as Scripture. It's always subordinate. It's always, you know, think about this. It's never, thus saith the Lord. So he came to me and said, it might have been bad pizza that I ate last night, but the whole time that you were talking, and for only the time that you were talking, I kept hearing a voice in my head saying, am I not calling you, says the Lord? Am I not calling you, says the Lord? Am I not calling you, says the Lord? And he said, I know for a fact that it was for you. Those words were meant for you. And I knew for a fact that they were for me because it just broke me. Like I just... It was like it was like a direct word of God for me. And by the next morning when I was meant to be signing up for the course I wanted to do, I had scrapped those plans. And the interesting thing is my desires were scrapped as well. It wasn't like oh, I really want to do this but I have to do this. It was just I don't, I don't care about that all of a sudden. I just want to do this. So we welcome words of prophecy and we feel confident to welcome them because we believe what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. So this is what he says about prophecy. He says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's a little bit more on the whole God's will thing. What's that God's will for us? That we rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. And then he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good. That's, that's our attitude towards the miraculous speaking gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy and words of knowledge and visions and things. We don't despise them, we receive them, but we test them. And so God will help grow us in wisdom and help shed light on our path as we seek to walk in godliness, as we soak in the scriptures, as we receive counsel, as we labor and persist in prayer, and as we seek supernatural guidance from him. And I'm saying that as we do these things, as we avail ourselves of these means of grace, it's in that context that the anxiety leaves us and we can confidently make decisions. We can confidently make decisions. One of the best things about having a high view of God's sovereignty is that we know we can take risks because he never does. Risk is all about, in some sense, it's about ignorance, right? It's a risk because we don't know what's going to happen. It's a risk because we're ignorant of the outcome. And the more ignorant we are of the outcomes, the bigger risk it is. Well, that doesn't apply to God ever. So because he, in his secret will, Ephesians 1, 
works all things according to the counsel of his will, and because he, Romans 8, 28, works all things for the good of those who love him, then we can live risky lives in pursuit of his glory. I'm not talking about risky lives just for a, because we're adrenaline junkies. Like That's all about me. I'm talking about risky lives following Jesus' example. We can be confident. How many of you want to be confident in the decisions you make? I'm saying as you avail yourself of these means of grace, you can be confident in it. Now, sometimes, I, um, sometimes I look into Renee's eyes, gaze into those beautiful pools of, I don't know, I never know what color they are. I don't know if they're blue or green or yellow or a mixture of all of them and gaze affectionately into her countenance and, and I say to her, you know, I could have married someone else. I could have married someone else and been happy. Amen? I could have married someone else and been happy. Because following God's will is not about hitting the bullseye every time. It's not about counting out a hundred chairs and trying desperately to sit on the one that he has reserved for us. It's about trusting his secret will that works all things for his glory and according to his purpose. It's about knowing his revealed will so that we can make moral, ethical decisions. It's about soaking our minds in scripture so that they would be transformed and renewed, getting counsel around us with wise people who will speak into our situation, praying earnestly, asking for God's direction, perhaps sometimes experiencing his supernatural intervention and then just doing something. I could have married someone else. If there was another girl who was like Renee, who loved Jesus and loved me and wanted to be married to me forever, well, at least for the rest of our lives, then I could have married that girl and be happy. If you're banking on the one person out there without which you will always be miserable, then that, I mean, that, that gets screwed up very quickly, right? If someone makes the wrong decision, then everyone is screwed. Think about it. Praise God, that's not how things work. I could have married someone else and been happy, but I'm confident that I did the right thing in marrying Renee. I'm confident that she was the woman that God wanted me to marry. It was part of his will. She loves Jesus. She loves me. She wants to be married to me for the rest of our days. And so we can confidently make decisions, not stressing about hitting the bullseye every time. So the four facets of discerning God's will. Number one, read about it. Number two, talk about it. Number three, pray about it. And then number four, it's really important. You can't forget that last one. Sometimes you've just got to do it. All right, so read God's word. Saturate yourself in it. Get counsel. Talk about it. Come before God and pray about it. But just at one point, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to take the risk. You've got to make the decision. There's a helpful little book written by Kevin DeYoung, He goes further than I do, away from the supernatural stuff to more of just the wisdom stuff, but it's called Just Do Something, and it's a good title. Guys, we are so paralyzed by our choice. We're so paralyzed by the fear of doing something outside of God's will. Sometimes we've just got to do it. So as I pray for us now, this is what I'm going to be praying, and be careful Only say amen to this if you are up for it. But I'm going to be praying that God would enable us to make all of life all about Jesus. That he would enable us to get our priorities straight and position ourselves in such a way that we can more clearly see what God's will is for us. For some of us, that's going to mean more suffering than if we just did our own thing. For all of us, maybe. And so, I guess there's a choice before you, pursue your own ends and, and 
and experience more comfort or decide that you want to walk in God's will and come what way. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about this choice that was before them, he said, be of good courage. The worst they can do is kill you. The worst they can do is kill you, but not a hair of your head will be damaged. That is, your life in this life might be short and painful, but eternity beckons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us, your revealed will to us. I thank you that this is a church that you're building into a community that wants to know you and your word, that really does desire your word like honey, sweet honey. I pray that that desire would never fade but only get more and more keen. And that as we pursue you in your word that you would bring us into more and more community with one another. That we would invite more and more godly and and mature people into our sphere of influence so that we might be influenced by them. And I pray that we would pray. Help us to be earnest in prayer. Diligent in prayer. Persistent in prayer. Laboring in prayer. Delighting in prayer. Asking for guidance. Giving thanks in every occasion. And Lord, we invite the gifts of your spirit just to be poured out upon us. We want this church to be edified and we know that's why you give gifts. We especially pray that you would give us gifts of prophecy. And now Lord, I pray that as we take up our crosses to follow you, that we would be of good courage. That we know we can be confident in the decisions we're making because you are our sovereign Lord. You're never surprised. You never need a plan B. You never take risks. You're working all things for our good. So as we seek and desire and zealously yearn to follow in your footsteps, please please give us courage. Father, please make us a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Question one. Should we rely on prophecies from other Christians with regards, with regards to God's specific will for our lives? E.g., I feel like God wants you to be a doctor. How should we handle this? Yeah, um, no, you shouldn't rely on prophecies. Um, if God is gracious and gives someone a word of prophecy, then it should form part of a an accumulation of counsel. Um, so I don't think we should ever base anything entirely on a prophecy, and certainly we shouldn't base anything on a prophecy that's not biblical. So this is something we need to understand and um, make sure we don't become a naive charismatic church, and that is that there are p- false prophets, and some of them are sent by Satan to deceive the church, and some of them are just deceived themselves. They're just naive um, and so that's why Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5 are so important. You've always got to test. So I'll tell you what happens. If you, if you come to us and say, I think I've got a word of prophecy or I've got a vision, I think it's for our church, then um, I'll get you to, to give me as much detail as I can. I'll probably get you to write it out or email it to me, and then at our staff meeting on Tuesday we'll read through it, we'll pray through it, We'll test it against the scriptures and then we'll ask God whether there's anything here that we need to act on or whether it's just a word of encouragement for our church. We might relay it to you guys if we think it's for the edification of the whole church. So there's a process. There's, there's checks and balances. Um, and so all that to say, we shouldn't rely solely on someone telling us that we should do this or that thing. Yeah. Um, what do I do if my wife and I have different views on what God's will is? That's a good question. What do you, what do you think, John? <laughs> I'll just tell you my experience. And there, there are a range of views about this um, that different people who love Jesus and his word would have. Um, but 
So Renee and I have been married for 11 years now, and we, I think, I can think of two times where we were just completely at an impasse on a decision, complete loggerheads. Our understanding of marriage, uh, the way we understand scripture is that um, God calls me to be the head of the, of the marriage, and that Renee is called to um, submit to my, um, my headship, um, so that's Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Um, and what that means is that I'm, God will hold me responsible for how things are going in our family. So that's not to say God will blame everything on me, but he'll, he'll hold me responsible. Just like a CEO of a company, right? Like Qantas plane goes down, it's the grease monkey who didn't tighten the bolts, but it's the CEO who gets it in the neck. Because he wasn't the guy in the tools, but he's the head of the company. And so I think it's similar in marriage. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and that's, and just to be really clear about this, this might come up in our, our can women lead thing, but this is a nail-pierced headship. What Paul says, this is headship that's like Christ. The husband dies for his wife. That's what he said. So it's not lording it over. Like men have used this, right, to abuse their wives in the past. I'm the head, you do what I say. Um, that's not the picture that Paul gives us. It's a, it's a radical countercultural picture, especially for his day, but also for ours, I think. It's a nail-pierced headship. If you go to our house, everything you see in our house, Renee decided on what that would look like, all right? And it's not that I don't have an opinion, but I want, I want her to have freedom. I want, I want to release her to make decisions because I want to love her like Christ loved the church, but also because sometimes the time comes where I have to make a decision that she doesn't necessarily like. So two times I can think of. One of them actually was coming to this church instead of going and moving over to Cottesloe Beach in Perth. And, um, and so in that situation, I, we talked, and in all of my decisions, she has influence. If I just made decisions for myself, I'd be doing prison ministry from the inside, like I just would have wrecked everything a long time ago. My decisions are... That was a joke, by the way. Did you get that? (laughs) My decisions are way better because she is smart and she's godly and right. But in these couple of occasions where there was an impasse, I just had to say, sweetie, I love you. I believe that God has called me um, to lead this family and I think we need to go this way. I think this is the way God wants us to go. And the thing is, right... In both those situations, if she was here tonight, she would tell you that was the right decision. But even if it was the wrong decision, we had the right process. So um, there's, there's a bit of an example from our marriage anyway. If you want to talk more about that, that's a big, that's a big topic. I'm happy to chat more. Yeah. The scriptures often set out different commands based on different situations, i.e., the premise of good stewardship versus the rich young ruler giving everything away. When God's revealed will seems unclear, what then? I think I think this is this is the tricky bit, right? Because I think sometimes it's really clear and we just want to be disobedient. And then there's the honest times when it just seems cloudy. So I'd say uh, two things. Firstly, check how you're positioning yourself. Like, check that you are in the scriptures, check that you are in prayer, check that you have godly counsel. And then if you're doing all those things and it just seems really unclear and you've got two options before you, which both seem really good and seem really godly and either one could be good, just pick one and do it, right? Um, 95% of the time, this is a quote by Donald uh, Barnhouse, he says, 95% of knowing God's will is just being prepared to do it before you know what it is. Like often we, we are paralyzed by choice and um, we just don't do it. And so if, if you're honestly, it just seems cloudy, there's two good choices before you and you're just unsure what to do next, just go do something um, and I think it'll become much clearer. What would you add to that, Jono? Uh, just in terms of when you've got two scriptures that seem to be telling you different things, I think often what you need to do is interpret the, the unclear scripture in, in, in light of the clear scripture. So scripture interprets itself. We should, we should have a good grasp of scripture so that we can say, well, this says this, but I know elsewhere it says this. 
And so in the example that was given, right, the rich young ruler, that's a specific situation. Jesus talking to an individual. Stewardship, that's Paul talking to the church in Corinth. So we're more likely to apply that to our situation, being part of a church, than being a specific person that Jesus was talking to. So that kind of thing, this is kind of hermeneutics, um, understanding how to interpret the Bible. And also, I feel like we should never be in a position where we're completely at a loss. Like, as pastors of the church, we're really keen to catch up with you. There's a little number that comes up on the screen before and after the service. We'd love to catch up with you and talk through these things, get in a small group. Like, there's lots of ways that you can integrate um, counsel into your life so that you're never just at the end of your rope at a loss, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think something else that just came to me is that often in Christianity, one of the things that we do is that we just think that it's, it's a set of rules that we have to follow, so we just tick off the boxes and, and we'll be fine. But I think rather it's sort of becoming a kind, a kind of person rather than ticking off all these boxes. And so it's actually by doing all the things like pursuing Christ and desiring him that you actually become able to discern what is good and what God is um, once for your life. And so um, recently for, we answered this question in the youth ministry and I just got them to read out all these different verses that God actually pretty easily declares that is his will for your life. And so I just want to read out some of them. So for instance, God's will for us is to do the will of the Father in Matt 7.21. God's will is for us to watch over our lives and the lives of others in Acts 20, 27. God's will is for us to trust him during persecution and suffering in Acts 21.13. God's will is for us to repent in 2 Corinthians 7. His God's will is for us to serve one another in 1 Corinthians 8. His will is for us to stand firm in the will of God in Colossians 4. His will is for us to be sanctified, pure and holy in 1 Thessalonians. His will is for us to rejoice and to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in 1 Thessalonians 5. His will is for us to be faithful to God in Hebrews 10. His will is for you to trust him over your life in James 4. His will is for you to do what is right in 1 Peter 2, and his will is for you to live according to the Spirit in 1 Peter 4. So if you're completely at a loss, do those, and I think you'll become the kind of person who'll be able to discern between the unclear and the clear things. Yeah. How does our church promote the spiritual gifts? Um, um, not very well. <laughs> Probably. I think I, Well, I think part of it is by trying to make the case that there are such things and we're not cessationists. We don't believe that they all got switched off after the apostles died out or after the, the canon was closed. Um, I think... Um, uh, okay, so here's the thing. Um, I've, I've been convicted about a, what I think God wants us to do with this is to, is to um, do more to to enable us to more eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. So um, I don't know what that looks like exactly. Um, here's the thing, right? They're, they're spiritual gifts. They're gifts of the Spirit. They're not apples on a tree that we can go and just pick for ourselves. They're, the Spirit is sovereign. The wind blows where it wills, Jesus says. And so we need to trust that God is going to be active in giving gifts. So I don't want us to be grasping for them. Like, um, we do want to eagerly desire them, but we don't want to be in, ever in danger of trying to manufacture them for fear that we, we won't get them or something. Um, so how, how do you live in that space between desiring them but not wanting to manufacture them? Well, it's understanding that they're gifts and not products. So that... The fact that they're gifts implies that they are given to us. We can't buy them, we can't earn them. We eagerly desire them by asking God to give them to, to us. For example, I've asked God on many occasions, please give me the gift of tongues. I've really wanted the gift of tongues. He's never given me the gift of tongues. Now, should I despair that I can't speak in tongues, therefore maybe I'm not holy or, or I lack faith? No, I just remember it's a gift. And that's why Paul says, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, because it's a gift. He's thanking God because God's the giver of the gift. Um, so I don't pat myself on the back because I speak in tongues more than all of you, but I thank God. 
And so we remember that he is the giver. And so all we're left with, really, is a child asking his father for what he wants. And, um, and God distributes gifts according to his wisdom and according to his plans. So we're eager, but we're not obsessed. There's more to come on that. I, I don't know. I'm asking God to make it more clear for us. But, yeah. All right. Uh, final question. If we feel like we have a word from God for someone, how should we go about it? I, I, can, I can speak from experience um, how I've tried to go about it. So there's been a number of times, and in fact there's probably a number of people here who have been on the end of me giving them a phone call and saying, hey, I feel like um, God's placed something on my heart to say, but uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, so often God will place something on my heart to say to someone and the way I'll go about it is I might give them a call or I'll catch up with them and I'll, I'll say that. I'll say, hey, there's something really heavy on my heart that I feel like I need to say to you. It might be from God, it might not. You need to test this and I need to test this. But here it is. <laughs> I'm going to say what it is. But remember that it's, I'm not saying it's, this is God saying this to you. This is just what I feel like God is, is placing really heavily on my heart. Um, and so that's often how I've gone about it. It's not a, thus saith the Lord. It's a, I think this is what's going on and I need to relate this to you, but um, I'm, I'm going to put my heavy foot on the scriptures, not on the, the prophecy or on the weight that's been placed on me. Um, that's how I've tried to go about it. Would you, what would you add to that, Jono? Yeah, just, again, the checks and balances. Like, am I saying this to this person because I've got a grudge against them and I want them to pay and... You know, like, we can have false motives for these things. Jono, I think God's telling you to give me a raise. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not true. I know that for a fact. <laughs> but, hey, here's the thing. Cause, so there's a tension here because we want, we want to be um, humble in, like, Take this with a grain of salt, all of these things that we say to make sure that people don't know we're like, thus saith the Lord. But you're also going to need courage because for you to go up to someone and say, I think this is what God is saying to you, that's, you, that's a risk, right? You might be risking the relationship, you might be risking looking dumb. And so I heard of a, a church in England where that a woman got up the front to give a testimony about how she did this. She shared, she was on the train, went to a complete stranger, said, I think God is has this word for you and it turned out she was completely wrong like complete like way off she looked like an idiot and the whole church applauded her and they applauded her because they were they were applauding her courage not her like precision and so I think this is what we want to encourage we need to cultivate a kind of community where people aren't risking everything by coming to me and saying God might be saying this to you um, the other thing is, uh, the m- most amount of volume of um, words of knowledge and stuff that I've received in this church have come anonymously, and they're almost always of no benefit to me, because I can't interact with them, I can't get any extra inf- information about them, they're kind of like, just drop this here and hope that it gets the message across, and so the but ne- don't do it anonymously. Do it in fellowship. Like we are brothers and sisters. We can approach one another about these things, even if it's a tricky thing or a, or a risky thing. So be encouraged in that. Mm. We done? Yeah. Yep. Thanks, man. Sweet. Thanks, guys.